2: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zog, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zog Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Andrea Pino. She is the co-author of "We Believe You: Survivors of Campus Sexual Assault Speak Out." Um, We Believe You is a book from young activists. That's Andrea. Uh, one of the young activists at the forefront of the movement to end sexual assault on college campuses. Across the United States, student activists are exposing a pervasive cover-up of sexual assault on college campuses. Every day, more survivors come forward, but other survivors choose not to. We Believe You elevates the stories, the headlines about this issue that have been missing more than 30 experiences of trauma, Healing and everyday activism, representing a diversity of races, economic and family backgrounds, gender identities, immigration statuses, interests, cap- capacities, and loves. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Well, as I said, uh, you know, just briefly before we started the show, uh, your book is daunting, I guess. I thought, as a social worker, I realized the enormity of the problem of assaults and rapes on college campuses, but, you know, after reading your book, I see I am really not necessarily misinformed, but uh, not well-informed. So tell us about the book. I mean, tell us how it came about for you personally and your co-author. Yeah, so I think another one of the reasons why people
3: um, are not aware of the scope of the problem is simply because media aren't covering all the stories. They're covering the stories that are easily digestible, that make us least uncomfortable. And and because of that, we're not truthfully aware of just how prevalent it is. Um, Annie and I should have put this book together in 2014, right as we were wrapping up filming for The Hunting Ground, which we are two of the primary subjects, which premiered at Sundance in 2015. And, And when finishing up the filming, and, and, you know, our brief experience with with the industry and with Hollywood – Um, we realized that that these stories weren't getting across, the stories that had messy details, that involved abusive relationships, that involved students of color, that involved students identified as LGBTQ. Um, You know, really all these narratives that we know are happening, um, you know, at incredibly high rates but are just simply not getting the light of day. You know, so during our travels um, since 2013 when we came forward um, as survivors of sexual violence at our university, at the University of North Carolina, Um, You know, we've traveled to over 50 institutions, and every time we go there, we hear from survivors, you know, who say they didn't feel safe coming forward or they didn't know that their activism would, um, would be enough, and we realize that there's really this disconnect as to what constitutes activism, what constitutes survivorship, and, and we wanted to give a platform to those stories that simply weren't getting that coverage, and, and that's really the whole goal of the book. The book was to you know, really elevate you know, over 30 voices of survivors, most of whom have never been heard before or who have not been believed, and really share them with the world, um, you know, really paint the picture that sexual violence happens to people who identify as women, who identify as men, who don't identify as either. And, and who really could be anybody's children or anybody's partners or anybody's friends. And, and we've heard from the early readers so far that um, they really have connected with, with so many different types of narratives. And, and just like you said, even if they, they considered themselves informed, they didn't realize just how deep the problem was and, and how it really impacts people so much, but also creates a platform for us to recognize
2: what is activism and how we could be involved in ending violence. And maybe, let's start with that. What is activism? And I'm looking in your book and you have a list of all the colleges and universities where rapes and assaults occur. And it was almost, to me, every university here in the United States, including the Ivy League schools, uh, all the big universities, the state universities. I mean, you can go on. The list seems to cover all of them. And the students who have been attacked and been assaulted uh, the diversity, as you said, includes everyone, not only the individuals, but also from the different backgrounds, the different families that they come from. So there's definitely not a common theme when it comes to that. Yeah, absolutely. So the list in the book is actually a list of schools that are under investigation by the Department of
3: Education for Title IX allegations. So actually sexual assault happens at every university in the country, and actually not just in this country, but around the world. We've been to Canada, we've been to the UK, and we're hearing very similar patterns in those countries as well. Um, The difference is that in this country we have Title IX that requires universities to address this issue, whereas other countries do not. But um, those are just the schools that are under investigation. And the list is changing every day when the list was first announced in in 20. 2014, uh, thanks to pressure from the Obama administration, it had around 50 schools, and now there are over 200, and that list is ever-changing, and it does include most of the Ivies. It includes all the schools that I applied to when I was in high school, and and it includes, uh, you know, most schools that you see in the top list, and that's exactly the problem. It's that it's happening everywhere, and unfortunately, the brochures aren't painting the picture as to what's actually happening on campuses.
2: Well, is it happening more often, or are we reporting it more often, or is it a little, is, or is it both? I mean, say over the past, I don't know, 20 years, let's say, are, are there more attacks on campuses, uh, or is it because we would be, we're slowly becoming more aware of it? Is it getting worse? I think it's a
3: bit of both, um, you know, because you hear narratives from women in the 70s when they were first attending universities and talking about how it was really, they were really just told that that's what they're getting for, for attending predominantly male colleges at the time. You know, what do you expect if you're entering, you know, a man's club? But, uh, you know, I, I do think that it is getting, it's a higher rate now. And, and a lot of it is because uh, young men in particular are learning about sex through pornography and pornography in many ways glorifies rape. And unfortunately, if we don't talk about sex, then we won't, we won't be able to differentiate between sex and rape. And, and because of that, it's becoming much more commonplace that, That um, young men in particular are perpetrating rape and not even are not even aware of what constitutes rape. And I think a lot of that has to do with this institutional indifference and actually not just at universities, but also in high schools and in the military and in the Catholic Church. You see these constant patterns of institutional indifference to violence and without deterrence,
2: rape is simply just not going to go away. Do you think there's an expectation with men, let's say, and yes, you're talking about the generation 60s and 70s, for instance, when women sort of came of age in terms of equality with with men and sexuality uh, and birth control and all those kinds of things, so that men somehow, there's something about it that men somehow, you know, see women differently than they did say. 30 or 40 years ago where they were supposed to be protective of women there were certain things that they did or didn't do that there was just a, a cultural attitude towards women that has changed
3: I think what's interesting is that um, success is often seen as being masculine. Uh, having a career, going to college was seen as masculinity. So, I mean, violence was still happening in the 70s, even if women were being protected. There was this idea that if you're going to school, then you're part of the boys club and you have to act like a boy and you have to take, take what comes with it. And and that's also, that's actually something that's been very commonplace, especially with a lot of the um, kind of homophobic violence that's been happening now. It's the whole thing: well, you're presenting as a man, or you were once a man, or you know, kind of these these whole characteristics of 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 attributing masculinity to success. And what's been interesting with with sexual assault in particular is that it's about power. It's not even really about gender. I mean, women can be perpetrators too, but men can also be assaulted. And these narratives keep coming back to it's about power. It's about taking power away. And, And actually, one of the things that we see, especially within the fraternities and, and, um, and athletic programs, is that it's often even part of initiation. You know, either the men themselves are assaulted or they're pressured to assault women to be part of that organization. And, and it really is so embedded in our culture. And I think a lot of it is just that we don't call it out. And it's not until we call it out that we recognize just how wrong it's been and how, and how, how
2: it's been going on for just so long. So how do we call it out? Well, I think there's two things. Uh, the person themselves who has been assaulted, very often, at least my experience in, in working with clients and stuff, is people don't, they want to be anonymous. They don't want to, they don't want their families to know. They don't want their friends to know. They're embarrassed and still getting back to even though I'm the victim, uh, I become, the you know, the victim becomes the one who... Uh, is considered the person who initiated the confrontation, and so all and so women themselves don't say that's one of the problems I think don't say anything, and for for all of those reasons, and the other side which you talk about in the book, I mean, the the schools themselves won't don't do anything. They want to protect themselves and their reputation. So those two things combined, the story never gets told.
3: Yeah, well the truth is that there's more of a deterrence for coming forward than there actually is for committing a rape on campus, and that's something that is not, not only something that we can back up with anecdotes, but you can hear from just the headlines. And there's a lot that you have to put, put at stake for coming forward. And we see with, with Kesha and we see with, with uh, you know, everyone who's come forward against Bill Cosby that, you know, your whole life is on the line when, when you accuse someone. Um, I, I do think that things are getting better in terms of survivors wanting to come forward. I think a lot of that has to do with social media. It has to do with again more public figures coming forward. You know, since Lady Gaga could do it, I could do it. A lot of people have told us, you know, because you and Annie did it, I can do it too. And, and I do think that. That is, it is changing in terms of, of, of this kind of bigger culture of awareness. More survivors are feeling comfortable coming forward, not just privately, but also publicly. Although we do have anon- anonymous contributors in the book, we have several, many of whom did not come forward either because they feel unsafe within their own communities or they're still on campus. Um, I do think it's changing, uh, but I will say that again, there's a privilege to coming forward. You know, I'm not. I'm not in fear of retaliation right now. I'm not afraid of, of my school battalion against because I'm not in school anymore. Um, so I do think there's a privilege to that. At the same time, I think we need to move away as a greater society from a culture of awareness to a culture of accountability. You know, what would it mean if Meryl Streep were to call out Yale? What would it mean if Tina Fey were to call out Harvard? What would it mean if, if, if every celebrity who went to these institutions, who were bred by these institutions, would call them out? would ask them what to do about violence, would, would withdraw their donations to their institutions. I think it would have a huge impact if, if celebrities, if high-profile if high intellectuals in our society were to say, I'm going to call my school out, more than just say they're aware of sexual assault, because we've been aware of sexual assault since the 60s and 70s, and it's still
2: happening. And I think we need to move, away, move to a culture of accountability that actually holds our institutions accountable. So they have to act on it, and I I agree with you. I think these celebrities would have an enormous impact. In the same way that celebrities who have come out, uh, when they have come out and have come out to the public as being gay, whether journalists or people in power or politicians, it makes a huge difference for the general population to feel comfortable themselves to do the same thing. Okay, let's talk about the stories, because you have 30 or more stories in in your book, but yours is a story. So tell us your story.
3: Yeah, so... um... I, I come from a Cuban-American family, uh, which I think is interesting now just because Cuba is back on the radar here in the States. Uh, my grand, my uh, my grandparents came over when they were in their 20s, uh, you know, with my mother coming not too far after that. And, you know, they grew up in inner city Miami. My mom did. Uh, you know, my, my dad came when he was a child from Cuba, you know, right as Castro took over. And, you know, my whole life has been growing up in a Cuban family. It, it's been my whole family being in Miami and never leaving. Um, you know, it's been, it's growing up being like everyone else. Everyone in my neighborhood spoke Spanish. It was our first language. English is our second. And the idea of going to college was something that no one really understood. People like me didn't go to colleges. Uh, and if we did, we went to community college. We definitely didn't go to a university like the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um you know, so I discovered how to apply to college all on my own. Nobody was helping me. Nobody pays for college besides myself and student loans. And, and the idea of, of going to college was really what was going to get me out of, out of where I was, you know, everyone in my neighborhood stayed there. They didn't go anywhere. I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to do, you know, these things that women just simply didn't do much less Latino women. And, and I really do feel as if, um, You know, brochures really do betray students, not just because of the rate of violence, because violence can happen at any college, but really painting this picture that this is a place where you belong. What I learned was that you don't belong if if you call things out. And that's exactly how I felt. Um, You know, when I was assaulted my sophomore year at the University of North Carolina, um, I was told that I was just being lazy. Maybe I couldn't handle Carolina, Um, which to a first generation student, I mean, is, is completely heartbreaking. And to a survivor, it has a whole other level. And and it was when I was, you know, calling out these policies that that simply were not supporting survivors and was talking about what it meant to not feel like I belonged, that I truly realized what it meant to be ostracized from the community. You know, to, to go from being a student government and being a resident assistant and being so involved to simply not belonging at all. And, and, and that's actually when I come back to saying why it's so unsafe to come forward and why survivors don't come forward is simply because your entire community crumbles apart. and, and there's a lot of vulnerability that comes with, with recognizing that your institutions aren't perfect because I love Carolina, um, I still cheer for the Carolina basketball team, and I'm still a little bit sad uh, that we didn't win the national championship. but um, you know I'm still proud of my institution, but but there definitely was. You know, kind of the soul searching moment where I had to realize that I could still love my institution, but to truly love it, I had to call out what was going on,
2: and I had to fight Can for we, it all to right. Be I better. want to go back a little because you're talking about, you know, they made you feel like you were an outsider that because of where you came from and who you were or are, uh, you just really didn't fit in. But so, how could they have presented the university? To you, before, you know, at freshman year or as you were applying, because you say they aren't really, or we're talking about UNC now, but I guess a lot of these universities, you're saying they're not really honest about who they are and, and, and how they embrace students, is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, you know universities have very pretty brochures that that sell students on on not just an idea but also a sense of belonging. I mean, you are you are buying an identity. You're not just you're not just buying your college degree. And and I felt like I belonged. You know, I was ambitious. I was political. Uh, you know, I had a different background that most students didn't have. And, and I think it wasn't until I got to campus that I realized that I, I was a very small percentage of Latino students. But I was also. Um, you know, the idea of calling out an institution is an even smaller percentage. Most students don't call out their institution. Most students don't protest what the universities are doing or not doing. Most students, if they protest, they protest things that are beyond the college campus because it's very difficult to call out your institutions that you love so much. And, and I felt that, you know, as soon as I was asking these hard questions, and, and I think, you know, it's not that I didn't belong at the institution. It's that I was felt, you know, I was I was I was made to feel that I didn't belong, and really not by fellow students, by but by the university, by the administration. So
2: you, you, know, you felt being betrayed? betrayed.
3: Of course, and that's something that we we often say. You know, there's this concept concept of institutional betrayal, and it's a term coined by by um, a psychologist in the University of Oregon, Jennifer Fried, that you know, oftentimes students that are institutionally betrayed often have even worse mental health outcomes because they have that second layer of betrayal, the first layer being the assault and the person who perpetrated it, the second layer being the betrayal of the institution. And, and I will say personally, I mean, that's something that till this day, I'm still working to do. I'm working to do what it meant to be betrayed by professors and by administrators and what it meant to not be able to go to football games anymore, what it meant to, to not be able to walk on campus without, without getting stared at, or, or, or just feeling like I was out of place because I was trying to make things
2: better. Was there anybody on campus who supported you? I mean, whether it was girlfriends or other professors or counselors, or were you really alone, totally isolated in your feelings of, of being a victim and being out of place?
3: Um, no, and, and they're actually all dedicated in the book, but uh, the majority of the people who were very supportive for me were, fellow prof- were professors, who, who really not only believed me but also believed in me, and that's something that I tell them to day. you know they're the reason I wrote this book because they they gave me the the strength that i that I once had, you know remembering why it is that I love to write, why it is that, that I was there at the university you know and and I think also I mean Annie meaning meaning Annie Clark was transformative for me and and is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing and and you know she was one of the first people who said I believe you, you know who said that that um that I, I believe in what you're saying and not just my assault, but also what I was saying, you know, because I sounded like a big conspiracy theorist saying that universities were covering up sexual assault, which at the time, everyone was laughing at me about and said, you're totally making it up. There isn't this large conspiracy at universities across the country. Like there's no way. And now there's data. And now, now it's, now it's a story that's being talked about and is being legislated across the country. You know, Kirsten Gillibrand is writing legislation on this, you know, it's become this, this, this big conversation, which at the time was seen as this radical conspiracy theory, um, you know, started by a 20-year-old. But, you know, there were people at the time, you know, who believed me, and I think that's that's really why I do what I do, and and that's why I was able to kind of come out from these shadows of feeling, you know, inadequate and feeling like I was crazy, which is exactly what they wanted me to feel like.
2: Andrea. Okay, they wanted you to feel like you're crazy. Obviously, you are not crazy. Uh, but not only are you not crazy, you have a certain to me. Uh, and you, you know, you've written this book. You have. Uh, you're, you're intelligent. You're. You know, when I call you brilliant. You're. You're out there. You've, uh, and obviously not afraid to speak out personally publicly but what about those people because not all of us are like you and there are a lot of and there are several uh, lots of examples in the book about people it doesn't have that kind of and i'm using it not a happy ending but the kind of ending that you're you've become a, a very positive activist for the cause but what about the people who don't have those kinds of strengths what do they do um you know they just they get raped they get assaulted um, they become depressed, they don't have a happy ending, or they don't have an ending that's, that, that uh, is very positive. Uh, let's talk about their stories as well.
3: Yeah, so actually one of the goals of the book is to really paint the full picture of a survivor. You know, it's, it's, it's broken up into different chapters, you know, including who they were before, who they were during during the process of, of, of the assault itself and, and, and who they are now, um, you know, during their healing, during their own finding of, of what is their activism, and actually when they declare their independence from that particular event in their life. Unfortunately, we we as a as society only get to see that one part, the part of the assault itself in that tragic moment. But in reality, survivors are such complex people, just like all people are. There's so much to who we were as kids, who we are now, and who we will become. And unfortunately, the media just do not paint these complex characters as who they are, and that's exactly what we wanted to do in the book. And, you know, I will say, you know, I, there are some days that I'm happy, and there are some days that I'm not happy, and people will say that I have, you know, a heroic, happy ending. But in reality, you know, I didn't get to have my four years of college. You know, after my second year of college, I, you know, I almost feel like I graduated in 2013, because that was, you know, after my, after Coming forward against the university, I felt like I essentially relinquished my, my chance at the four-year college experience, you know, and, and when I go home, like, people don't really understand what I'm going through, and, and the Latino community is still trying to figure out sexual assault. And, and a lot of people feel that way. They feel as if they have happy moments and they have, they have sad moments. And, and you don't have to pick one or the other to have a happy ending. You can have both. And in the book, you know, we talk about this term everyday activism and how, you know, sometimes activism is waking up from bed and eating a bowl of cereal. Sometimes it's talking to your kid about consent. Sometimes it's going to your job and trying to maximize the conversation around ending violence. You know, we have some contributors in the book who are parents and teachers and talk about what it's like to talk about this issue in the classroom. And even if they're not public about their experience, most of whom are not in their, in their, in their workplace, you know, talking about how it is that it's on all of us to really end this, this, uh, end this problem and not just survivors. You know, one of our contributors, Ariane um, you know, she went to Harvard and now she's at McGill in med school and she wants to become uh, an ER physician and she wants to be the first person that a survivor talks to, who says, I believe you, you know, and a lot of it is, we just don't think about doctors being activists. We don't think about that being activism. We also don't think of teachers being activists. You know, we think of people like Annie and me, who who, who this has become our career, but in reality, activism is in so many areas of our society. And survivors, although they're having bad days, although they might not have happy endings, are doing things that are chipping away at this bigger issue of rape culture. We're just not giving them the, the time of day. And that's one that we actually want to change. We we want there to be a platform for these other types of activism, for the stories that are not, not completely happy, but are also not completely sad.
2: Well, it's if- I'm from New York, and as you, know, you mentioned earlier, but Senator Kirsten Gillibrand says, you, describing both you and Annie as extraordinary activists and the work that you're doing or have done will change the world, and I think that's just what you're talking about, and obviously that's what you're in the process of doing. We have a couple minutes left, Andrea, so let's get the websites we can go to to find out more about your book and what you're doing and about End Rape on Campus so that uh, you know we can we have access to, to you and can, you know, ongoing in terms of what you're doing to change the world yeah.
3: yeah absolutely if you're interested in the book We Believe You you can find out more about where to buy it at www.webelieveyou.net And um, Annie and I actually run an organization called End Rape on Campus, which is more of an organizational approach to what we've been doing since 2012 and 2013. Uh, We currently have five full-time staff members, and we've definitely grown from, you know, a small garage organization helping survivors to to a bigger nonprofit organization. And and until this day, we support survivors directly. We help them in in taking action against an institution, whether it's through the federal process by filing a Title IX complaint or it's seeking legal, legal counsel or mental health care. You know, we also, you mentioned, mentioned Kirsten Gillibrand, um, we work on legislative efforts pretty much every day. And now that we live in Washington, D.C., you know, we, we are often working with, with Senator Gillibrand's office as well as, as other uh, national legislators. But we also do a lot of state by state work. We, we, are, we worked with Governor Cuomo in, in passing his Enough is Enough legislation. We, we recently worked in Virginia to pass. Of um, high school consent education, which is it's great to see that's happening in Virginia, and that I hope that it can happen elsewhere. But we've also had effective legislative efforts in Maryland and in California, and, and that's where a lot of our time goes to. It's to really advocating for better policies that truly support survivors.
2: Great. Andrea, thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of information, yeah, obviously. For very you. informative. Good luck with the book. It's fantastic, and uh, uh, keep up and keep doing the work you're doing. You're Definitely shaping the national debate. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Appreciate that.
2: Uh, We're going to take a short break right now. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
0: internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com. are you or someone you know interested in attending college with both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002 there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process.
3: You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Scholdenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety
2: We're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Dock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Tara Haley. Tara is author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. She's a reporter and a journalist. She has a master's degree uh, in photojournalism from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, Here's a question. How does an unscheduled cesarean section or delayed cord clamping impact other issues like lactation, postpartum depression, or mother-baby bonding? Parents have to make endless decisions, sometimes even before they become pregnant, that can affect the outcome of their pregnancy, their health, and the health and behavior of their future children. Um, My guest today and author, science journalist, Tara Haley, has firsthand experience with many of these unforeseen parenting challenges, um, and I'm going to let her talk about those. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Tara. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, your book, The Informed Parent, is, is, is really kind of like a, a Bible of parenting, but it's based not on antidotal information, which I think some of my parenting was based on, but really evidence-based, science-based uh, information in terms and you cover really the whole gamut of parenting um having gone through the book, so where do we start because you cover we really start from some of these issues that uh, I described um, you know particularly one that i 'm interested in the you know saving the the cord um, you know that 's a, a real controversialist issue today um, uh, to you talk about vaccinations and uh, prenatal vitamins, and uh, we can go, you know, on and on. So where do we start? Um, well, I don't,
4: we could start anywhere. Um, <laughs> the, the, what, we, what we tried to accomplish with this book, my co-author, Emily Willingham, and I wanted to put together a book that included the, sort of an overview of all the research on different topics which not only conveyed what the research was, like what the consensus was or what, what we knew from the science or, you know, what the contradictions were, but also how strong it was because, some you know, some topics have lots and lots of research. Um, other topics are very thin, and we didn't want a book that was bowling out advice or that was promoting some kind of philosophy because it seems as though that that's all that's out there right now are books that are telling you what you should do or or promoting a type of philosophy. And, you know, anyone who's had multiple children knows that each child is different. And, of course, each family is different. So what works for one family or one child might not work for someone else. And you can take this information and incorporate it into your individual circumstances, values, beliefs, you know, and uh, and, and use it as sort of a resource, not as a, a well, not as a, like, uh, um, well, I guess it's a Bible.
3: But... <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, all right, so it's not a Bible. You don't have to choose your religion when you're reading this book, and it's not a philosophy. It really is, as you say, it's science-based. So, uh, okay, uh, let's take vaccines because that's in the news all the time. And, you know, new parents, uh, and as you say, even before they have their baby, should we vaccinate? Should, when do you vaccinate? I mean, that's a huge controversy. I wanna, let's talk about that because, obviously, you cover that in the book.
4: Yeah. Um, vaccines is one of the areas we, that we researched and included that actually has the clearest evidence. Um, a lot of the things that we discussed in the book don't really have, like there's not a, there's not a super strong base in the evidence. Um, vaccines probably have combined more studies, um, about them than pretty much anything else that we covered in the book. Um, And that's fortunate because they all point in the same basic direction, which is that overall the benefits of following the CDC's immunization schedule vastly outweigh the risks of it. And that's not to say that there aren't risks, because there are. Um, It's it's impossible to have vaccines that are 100% risk-free because it's we you know we just can't do that yet. Right now (laughs) we're we're trying to improve them all the time, but it's just not possible. Um, But those risks tend to be so very rare or small, or they're simply mild. I mean, the, you know, the ones that have to do with just having a light fever or having soreness, those tend to be just minor and, and temporary risks. Um, but the really serious ones that people worry about are one in several million most of the time. So that compared to the benefits of avoiding these diseases and you know, keeping herd immunity up and ensuring that your child's protected for life against these diseases
2: the benefits are, it, it's it was a pretty clear evidence base there. Karen, right, we're not going to hear like in 10 years, you know, that was best practices 10 years ago, but it isn't now, and you shouldn't have vaccinated your baby.
4: No, not with vaccines because of what they go through to get there. I mean, you have to consider that when a child, when they're developing a vaccine, they're developing something for a healthy child. They're not developing a medicine for someone who's already sick, where you have a lower threshold for side effects, you're giving this intervention to someone who's already completely healthy. If you're going to give an intervention to millions of children who are currently healthy, you've got to be really, really sure that it's pretty safe and it's safer than any other kind of medication Um, and that that's going to last for a long time. So the processes that the the vaccines go through in terms of their clinical testing take into account all of that. And then the best part is that they don't stop looking at those safety concerns after the drug is licensed. So in the case of, uh, like, for example... Their, um, the first rotavirus vaccine actually did have a risk that was discovered after licensure, and they discovered it really quickly because they were watching. They were looking to see if there's something that occurs in a larger group of people that we couldn't have detected in a small group, and they found that there was a condition called intussusception, which is a, it's like a telescoping of the bowel, and as soon as they discovered that, they halted the vaccine to look at it more closely. And not only did they do that, but they also changed their protocols for clinical trials so that all vaccines after that one, they used much larger study groups that, were, that included enough people to detect even really rare things. So it's an ongoing improvement process. And with all that they're going through and the continuing, um, the continuing research after licensure, they have a lot of information. I mean, you see that, for example, with the measles vaccine, we've had it for 50-something years now they're still doing studies on it. They're still testing the safety of it, even though, you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people have received it in the U.S.
2: Well, what about, and there's always, and this is obviously, I guess, based on just someone's philosophy, that, you know, these vaccines cause attention deficit disorder, for one, or they cause allergies, or there's a whole slew, I, I guess, of, of uh, Problems that uh, behavioral problems that childrens develop that parents are attributing to the vaccines not true, Um, not true. Um, There's a lot of different reasons that happens. The most common
4: reason is just that there's a uh, correlation causation confusion, which means that they notice something they notice the symptoms of something after someone gets a vaccine. And the natural inclination is to say, well, A happened and then B happened, so A must have caused B. And that's not always how it works. You have to have a biological mechanism that actually can show how A caused B. And with nearly all of the different conditions that have been pinned to vaccines at some point or another, there's not a there's not a like a biological mechanism. There's not a a probable way that it could have actually done that. Um, they do also do um, very large case control studies, which is a type of study, where they compare children who have a condition with children who don't and then look at whether or not they were vaccinated. And then they look at children who are vaccinated and not vaccinated and follow them forward to see what they develop. And all those studies into many of those different topics, um, asthma, uh, ADHD, um, autism, of course, is, has been studied the most. Um, Uh, SIDS. uh, You know, when they look at all of those, they don't find that children who are vaccinated have any higher rates than
2: children who are not vaccinated. So Tara, we've been talking about vaccinations, vaccines, and you said that's the one you talk about evidence-based. This is like sort of the the one that there, in terms of science, there doesn't seem to be uh, any controversy. What about the Let's take a topic that's probably the most controversial even, you know, in terms of, uh, of parenting, but um, maybe controversial even in the science community, which is maybe the 180 from the vaccines.
4: Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of the best one. One of them is uh, co-sleeping, which I always hesitate to talk about precisely because it's so controversial. Um, co-sleeping. Co-sleeping, the question of whether, well, it's called co-sleeping or bed-sharing. Um, it depends on how you define it because some people consider co-sleeping, sleeping with a child in the bedroom but not in a, in a parent's bed. Bed-sharing is having and at a what child what age
2: sleep- could he, oh, sorry, oh, go ahead, describe that oh. and I'm going to ask, yeah.
4: <laughs> uh, bed-sharing is having a child sleeping in the bed with
2: um, a parent. What, what were you going to ask? I'm sorry. My uh, what, what age group we were talking about? I mean, you, oh, we're we're yeah. talking here about infants.
4: So okay. you know, when when you bring the baby home from the hospital, up until probably a year. I mean, many people do share beds with their children over a year, like at two and three and four years. But um, and, and there are, there that's more of a controversy within parenting communities, but not so much the science. The science when you come to uh, sharing a bed in infancy, the public health directives related to that say absolutely not to do it for the most part, at least in the U S and it varies by country. Different countries take a a slightly different tack on it. They mostly discourage it, but a lot of them will give you guidelines on if you're going to do it anyway, even though we told you not to, here are ways to reduce those risks. And in, in a sense, that's kind of what our book does. We don't, we don't tell you you should or shouldn't do it, but we explain the risks of it and we explain, um, what you can do to reduce those risks, if you are going to share a bed anyway, and the reason parents might share a bed anyway, is that they have they're not getting sleep, and um, it's obviously super important to get sleep, both for you and the baby. And if a baby, if you're having trouble getting a baby to fall asleep on their own or to stay asleep when they're in a bassinet or a crib that's not your bed then it becomes very frustrating Um,
2: and then a lot of moms who are breastfeeding
4: um, choose to share a bed so the breastfeeding relationship is easier for them
2: can I give Um, you an anecdotal example of that not sharing the bed but co-sleeping uh, having nursed three babies till they were um, one and a half, two years old, and, and and only breastfed, so it didn't make any sense. Just and this was not based on scientific evidence, which your book is. But I have a breastfeeding baby that I'm feeding every two hours in a different room. I'm having to get up. I mean, it's a whole big process to get the baby to bring him back to another room to sit in a chair and nurse him. Why not have him in a carriage right beside my bed? and pick him up and feed him and put him back. And it's it sort of, it, that made a lot more sense. I, I don't know why that would be something that w- one would not recommend, I guess is what I'm saying, or well, why, yeah. The bed, the co-sleeping part in terms of like having a
4: baby in the room is very strongly recommended. So, in fact, having a baby in the bedroom with you, in like having the bassinet or the crib or, or a cot in the room with you, that is actually protective against SIDS. So that's highly recommended. Um, that, that, you, that is definitely recommended, in fact, all pediatric organizations do. Where the controversy comes in is whether, um, you know, how high the risks are for parents to bring the child into the bed with them. That's where it gets really dicey. And part of the reason is that it, it does, you know, there's lots of studies showing an increased risk of SIDS and or suffocation, um, you know, sudden infant death syndrome or, or suffocation, When a parent and a child um, share a bed, an infant share a bed, the question is how high are those risks when you remove all the risk factors and that we're not really sure of because not many studies have done that. In fact, I I don't know if any study has removed all of them and those risk factors are prenatal smoke, so if you were smoking during pregnancy, that's a very high risk factor for SID, ensuring that the child is on their back instead of their stomach or side. Um, stomach and side sleeping are both highly associated with SIDS. Um, so if the child's on their back, that's reducing the risk. Breastfeeding cuts the risk of SIDS in half. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, you, you have to breastfeed, but that's, you know, that is one way to reduce the risk. Um, making sure that you don't have blankets or pillows that are within the sort of immediate area of the baby. So if you're going to have a baby in the bed with you, you, want, you need your um, you know, sheet either tightly wrapped around you or down at the bottom of the bed. Having a firm mattress, having a well-ventilated room, not using drugs or alcohol. So these are all different ways to reduce the risk. And the question is, when you do all of those things and when you've, intended, you know, when you've planned intentionally to sleep with your baby in the bed, how much higher are those risks of, of suffocation or SIDS? And we actually don't know that. And so what happens is the studies that have looked at the associations without considering, all, a lot of them have considered many of those factors. They've considered smoking or, or breastfeeding, but they haven't considered all of them together. Since we don't have that data, they tend to be more conservative and say, well, we see a, reduce, we, we see a higher risk of SIDS and suffocation with bed sharing. And in some cases, it's quite high. It's five to ten times higher. But again, they haven't considered all of those factors or they've not considered whether or not the parent intended to fall asleep with the baby. Because if you bring the baby into bed with you in order to breastfeed and then you accidentally fall asleep, then that's a different story than if you were intentionally setting up the environment for it. So sure. that's where it gets
2: really dicey. And it's, it's, it's pretty controversial among doctors and uh, definitely among parents. Okay, so that is that that I understand that's a very controversial kind of sticky uh, t- uh, sticky topic or one of the most. What about screening let's go back to like prenatal screening, ultrasound. Um, the advantages are disadvantages scientifically too ultrasound or i mean because they do more ultrasound now, as I understand it, say in the past five years to ten years, maybe right than they than they did previous to that. And you mentioned in yeah. the book we're talking about screening, not diagnosing, which I thought was an interesting point. because I'm, I, That was I think actually the first thing I was going to say, yeah, that yeah. you have to, the first
4: thing that people have to realize about those prenatal tests is that the vast, vast majority of them are screening tests and not diagnostic, which means that they are, a screening test can only tell you the probability that something's wrong. They can't tell you, yes, you have this condition or your fetus has this condition, they can only tell you you have an X percent chance or we suspect it. And then the diagnostic tests, such as an amniocentesis, um, those are the tests that they can use to actually diagnose things. That's the first thing to realize because there, there are several tests now that are marketed and discussed and even discussed by doctors in a way that makes them sound diagnostic, and that can be really confusing for parents who think, oh, well, you know, my, my child definitely has you know, a certain condition, and in fact, it's just a, you know, a, a likelihood of that condition, and they would have to do further testing to know for sure. So, that's, that's one thing to, to, you know, mention. Um, in terms of ultrasounds, I, I'm trying to think of how many, if there are two or three that tend to happen in each pregnancy, and now I can't remember, and of course, there are, there's some individual variation there. Um, having just those two or three is not, there, there are
2: not enough risks associated with those to be concerned about. What are, are the what, are, just, what are the risks, just generally, for the, even for those two or three?
4: Well, what you're doing is you're sending sound waves in there, and we, we don't know exactly what that might do in terms... In other words, we haven't found evidence that it causes harm. So when you have the babies, that's born, the babies that are born, or if you look at activity, we don't have evidence that there's something going wrong, but we also don't have evidence that there's nothing. So it's kind of a, a you know an unquantified risk, and the reason that we continue to do it is because enough studies have shown that we can't see harm. Um, it's it's kind of a hard way. To, does that make sense?
2: <laughs> it does somewhat make sense, yes. But yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I guess what doesn't make sense, or at least what I'm trying to kind of get from you, I guess, is if you have a well, let's let's take a a mother who is not. Um, high risk, um, or doesn't appear to be high risk, okay. and you are starting out uh, with uh, screening, giving, having her get ultrasounds, which has some risk, not quite sure what, I guess, not specifically whether or not there is a risk, or could be, or there is, but you're not sure what it is, is it more, what do you actually find, I guess what I'm saying is because it's a screening and it's not a diagnostic tool, what are you going to do after you do the screening, and is it worth the risk? I guess it depends on when you're doing the ultrasound, you know, eight weeks, you know, three months. Well, there's always
4: one thing to consider with any um, screening test. One of the risks that people often don't think about is the actual emotional stress risk or the risk of making a decision based on that. So if you're doing a screening for an ultrasound and they tell you, well, we see this abnormality or we have this, you know, we have concerns about, you know, how much, fluid we're seeing this part of the womb or, you know, something to that effect, then the risks are the emotional um, anguish that that could cause. I mean, when I, with my first child, I went in for one of my ultrasounds and they said, oh, well, we see, I can't recall what it was now. It was some word I probably couldn't pronounce, um, but they, you know, they said, we see um, such and such, such and such, and we're a little bit concerned. And I don't remember what the concern was because honestly, all my brain registered was oh, my goodness, my yeah. baby's going to die. You know, that's, and that's not what they were telling me. They were saying, we see a certain abnormality here. We want to do a 3D ultrasound so that we can look more carefully and get a better image and see if there's an issue. And they told me that on a Thursday, and we were going to go in Friday morning, my husband and I, to do the exam. Uh, well, not the exam, but the screening. And in that period of time... <laughs> <laughs> I was a wreck. I mean, I you know, the anxiety that I experienced in that, like, you know, 20-hour period and inability to sleep was pretty awful. So that's a risk that's important to consider and certainly is not, um, you know, not something to uh, dismiss. What I was saying before about unquantified risk is we don't have any evidence right now that doing an ultrasound one or two times during pregnancy is going to cause harm to the fetus. And the reason I, I hedged a bit on that is we it's almost impossible to prove that there's never harm. It's kind of like saying, I have a giant blue dragon in this room with me. Prove it doesn't exist. You can't. It, science can't prove a negative. And that's why I was sort of hesitating there because it's sort of a <laughs> it's sort of a sciency thing. And the other reason I hesitated is that I don't want to give the impression that science has shown, oh, ultrasounds are completely risk-free all the time because there's a new trend of people going and getting um, these boutique um, ultrasounds where they go into the mall and they get an ultrasound so that they can have a keepsake. And we don't know what the settings are on those machines. We don't know how frequently they're going. And so we, those could very well be causing risks that, you know, or, or increasing risks that we don't know about. And it's important that people aren't going and getting additional ultrasounds above and beyond what their provider is recommending.
2: And isn't that a question you should ask any healthcare provider, which I'm not sure that we do as consumers, like what is the status of the machine, how often is it checked, how, you know, the same thing one would do if you were getting a mammogram or any other kind of screening, but we don't necessarily do that. We make the assumption that the, the machine is, you know, state-of-the-art and, and also the person who's doing the testing is state-of-the-art, which is also not necessarily true. The, so.
4: Yeah, definitely. You always have the, the possibility of human error or just human foible in terms of not maintaining things. And I mean, you can ask about the uh, the quality of the machine and the settings. I, I wonder what kind of response you would get because, unfortunately, in healthcare in general, a lot of the trends are that you you know there's there's some tension between patients questioning doctors. That's kind of a new thing. In general, we used to just take our doctors at their word unfailingly, and, and now we're being a bit more critical. Um, and using critical thought, which is a very good development, but isn't always very well
2: received by the medical community so yeah uh, well, we only have a couple minutes left I mean you cover I, I don't I think you cover everything in the book in terms of the kinds of questions we would need to know, whether prenatal or baby or um, I mean we 've just covered what two or three of them so I, I mean I really recommend this book to parents, grandparents, and uh, uh, tell us the website we can go to uh, to buy the book, it just came out. Um, I downloaded it on my iPad, but you obviously can buy it at bookstores everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. And also you, do you have a website that we can go to uh, yeah. access? Yes.: yeah. um,
4: In fact, uh, it, the, the website is theinformedparentbook.com. So it's just you know THE, the and, you know, theinformedparentbook.com. And we did something unusual that I don't think many books do. We put all of our references on our website, so every single study that we relied on in a major way. I mean, there were
2: studies that we just kind of glanced at and then said, ah, I'm not going to use this.
4: We but have, every to, single, we have 30 we seconds
2: used, left, but I'm glad that you did mention that because uh, uh, So I just want to say, go to the website, read the book. It really is. You'll be an informed parent, and uh, Tara Haley, uh, the informed parent a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Great show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great day, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.